Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. On this episode, we're heading underwater to talk about some of the most unique animals on the planet. And luckily, we have Dr. David Harasti, who is a senior research scientist at the Port Stevens Fisheries Institute, to help answer some questions about these amazing creatures. Some of their characteristics make it seem like they're not even from this planet, and I'm really excited to explore those characteristics with you. So make sure you put on your scuba gear, because we're heading into the sea to talk about seahorses. over 40 different species of seahorses, and they're distributed throughout the world's oceans, and they usually live in more shallow waters where it's not too cold. They're relatively small animals, but the largest species is called the big-bellied seahorse, and it can actually get to be over one foot long. But some species are extremely small, such as Satomi's pygmy seahorse, which can only get to be around 14 millimeters long. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, seahorses look ancient, and the earliest seahorse fossil was dated back to around 13 million years old, which is relatively recent when you think about other types of marine organisms. And I know you probably have a thousand questions about seahorses, like what type of animal they actually are, and do the males really give birth? Well, David is going to give us all of that cool information and more. He's been working with marine species for over 20 years and has a vested interest in seahorses. He even did his PhD research on an endangered seahorse species called White's Seahorse. So let's take a quick break, and when we get back, you're going to hear my interview with David. The person that I want to recognize in this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Dr. Beck Strauss, who is currently a planetary geophysicist. They got their PhD in Earth Science from the University of Minnesota, and they're currently researching why moon rocks have a magnetic field. They're also working on a way to calibrate certain instruments that geophysicists use in the field when studying magnetism. Not only that, but they're also the president and founder of a queer employee resource group at NIST. They're still young, but they're paving the way for anyone who wants to work in the scientific community. If you want to learn more about Dr. Strauss or this series in general, check out onwildlife.org. Okay, we're back. Here's my interview with Dr. David Harasti. Hi, David. How are you doing? Great. Good to have you on board. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much for coming on. I really can't wait to get talking about seahorses. Uh, But first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in seahorses? 
Oh, it's a bit of a long roundabout story how I got involved in seahorses. I went to university to save kangaroos and koalas, and I, I wanted to look after the warm and fuzzy animals. <laughs> and halfway through my degree, I took up scuba diving, and I, I fell in love with the marine environment. So I completely changed degree. Halfway through uni, I swapped and I started a marine science, went towards the marine science courses. And I first saw my first seahorse in 1997, and I was just captivated by this mythical animal in the ocean. And my love of diving and underwater photographer led me down the road of becoming a seahorse scientist because I was so captivated by him. That's awesome. And it must be so amazing to actually get to see a seahorse in in the wild. <laughs> oh, it's a highlight for anyone that sees one. I, I take my young kids snorkeling and, you know, if they find a seahorse in the seagrass, they are just so excited. And if I'm down there and I find a seahorse and there's other kids around, I'll show them and they, they just can't get over this amazing looking creature. It's this mythical animal that's come out of the ocean and everyone's just captivated by them. I don't think I've ever come across anyone that said that they don't like a seahorse. Oh, me neither. <laughs> and they really yeah. don't look like anything else in the ocean. And we're going to get to uh, talking about that a little bit later. So I can't wait to to hear about that. But you are also a researcher at the Port Stevens Fisheries Institute. Can you talk about some of the research that you've conducted there? Yeah, so I work as a marine scientist for Fisheries New South Wales. And I'm quite fortunate. I've got a really diverse job. So one day I might be working on great white sharks and doing baited video surveys for them off some of the beaches here. The next day, I might be doing seahorse surveys in the Port Stevens estuary. Um, I've worked on turtles. I've worked on uh, grey nurse sharks, great white sharks. There's a threatened fish over here called the black cod. So there's a lot of hours spent in the water diving and seeing the marine environment. And it's, you know, it's, it's a real highlight of my job when I get to go diving. It's not always great. Sometimes we do diving in really, really poor visibility and the water's really cold. So it's, it's not all <laughs> tropical reef, blue water, really warm, swimming around in board shorts. Sometimes it's, you're in your dry suit, it's cold and you're miserable and you don't want to be there. So it's, <laughs> it's not always the best. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, they don't show you all that, uh, the nitty gritty side of the research often. <laughs> oh, most definitely not. And to be honest, probably 80% of my time I'm spending at my computer in my office doing work and 20% of the time I'm out in the field and that's 20% of the time out in the field is what you know makes me love my job. Yeah, absolutely. And the the 80% is also very important for your job too. So <laughs> Oh, most definitely. Like when we do all our research work, we've we've got to write up our research so we can share it to the wider community so they can understand what's happening in the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just start talking about seahorses. So uh they I like I was saying before, they don't look like any other organisms living in the ocean so what exactly is a seahorse and and what other animals are they closely related to well that's the thing about the seahorse not not they don't really look much like anything else and the reason for that the scientific name for the seahorse the genus is hippocampus and in ancient greek the word hippo means horse and campus means sea monster so they are the horse sea monster. They have the head of the horse and the body of a sea monster. And they're a very bony and rigid animal. They're, they're quite tough. And the most obvious thing about them is their head. It's at a 90-degree angle to their body. And they've got this really long tail. And that tail is really important because they need that tail to curl around and hold on to habitats. And closely related to them in their same family, it's known as the Cygnathidae family, there's pipe horses. There's pipe fish, which is a long, skinny um, fish that live on the seafloor. 
and also sea dragons. There's three types of sea dragons, which are all endemic to Australia, and they're closely related to the seahorses as well. Seahorses have a lot of features that make them stand out, including eyes on the side of their head. David let me know why this helps them in the wild. Well, seahorses are quite special in that their eyes can move independently of one another. So the left eye can move in one direction and the right move in the other. And the reason for that is that they've got to hunt for their really small microscopic foods. So they can move their eye in one place looking over here and then they'll keep their eye over there to find what they can eat. So just like a chameleon can move its eyes independently or the mantis shrimp underwater, the seahorses have the ability to do the same thing. And it's purely so they can keep their eye out for the prey that they're looking for. Oh, and probably and probably to avoid predators as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool and probably a very useful uh, thing when you're floating around in the ocean. So I also recently learned that seahorses don't have teeth and you were talking about looking for their prey. So, so how do they eat and what special feeding adaptations do they have that helps them do this? Right. So you're right. The seahorses don't have any teeth. And what they have is they have this long snout and at the end of that snout, they have a little mouth. Now, I refer to the seahorses when they're feeding as basically underwater vacuums. So they'll find their little microscopic shrimps, and these shrimps are little copepods or amphipods that are too small for us to see as humans, but you put them under a microscope and you can see what they are. So when a seahorse finds one of their, um, their prey, they'll flick their head, and then there's this little quick action in the mouth, and it sucks up the prey. And because the seahorse doesn't have any teeth, they swallow the prey whole. So this, this shrimp goes into the seahorse's body hole. And they don't actually have a stomach. The seahorse just has a really long digestive tract. So they're constantly eating and pooping, like, all the time. So they have to eat <laughs> all the time for energy because they're expelling their food so quickly. They have to keep eating, otherwise they won't have enough energy to survive. They are feeding machines, underwater vacuums, basically. They're just constantly eating. That's really amazing. I've never heard of not having an actual like stomach before. That's that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's why they, you know, the food passes through them so quickly. And can you imagine, like, if we're eating all day and we're not storing any of that, we won't have energy. We'd just be laying around. And that's the same as a seahorse. So that's why they've constantly got, got to be feeding. And if you're ever watching a seahorse in an aquarium, every now and then you'll just see them flick their head. Now you can't see what they're what they're trying to eat but that's actually when they're eating is they'll flick their head they'll vacuum up their prey and we can't see the prey but that's what they're doing wow that's so cool another unique feature of seahorses is that they don't have huge fins like a lot of fish do i wanted to know how they get around okay we can put this really easily seahorses are not designed for speed they are <laughs> one of the slowest moving fish in the ocean and the reason for that is that they have this tiny dorsal fin on their back and they flutter it madly to propel themselves forward, and they steer with their little pectoral fins on, on their heads. Now, they're not fast. They can't outswim a predator. They, um, you know, the smallest seahorse, a dwarf seahorse, moves on average like one and a half metres speed over, um, over an hour. So not fast at all. So what they must rely on for survival is camouflage. They can't outrun their predators, so they must try and blend into their surroundings. So Seahorses are actually quite tricky to find in the wild because they can change their colour to match what they're living on. So you can often find a gold seahorse living in a gold sponge or a greeny grey coloured one in the seagrass. And they'll change their colour to adapt to what they're on so that the predators can't see them. And camouflage is one of the most important things for their survival. 
that's insane. And I, I never even knew that seahorses could change their color. That's something that you think about like with, you know, like a chameleon or maybe an octopus, but not, not a seahorse. Um, yeah. And they, they, they do it gradually over time. So we tag our seahorses here with little colored injections known as using elastomer. So I can follow the same animals and, you know, I might have a seahorse that's black living the seagrass and three days later, you'll see them living on a, a gold sponge and you can see them gradually changing their color over a couple of days to match the um, the sponge that they're living on. It's really cool. That That is really cool. And I guess that the seahorse name is kind of uh, deceiving because you think of a horse running really fast, but seahorse is not, not so fast. <laughs> yeah, seahorse is definitely not fast. There's no speed in a seahorse, that's for sure. But <laughs> like when we do our work on them, people often ask like, how do you catch them? I'm like... Well, it's not hard. I just <laughs> grabbed them with my fingers and because they don't go anywhere. <laughs> Very easy to catch a seahorse. And you were talking about their uh, predators too. So what kind of predators do they have in the wild? Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. So some of the research I've done here over the years has looked at what eats predators. So there's several types of fish we found to eat them. So big flathead like to eat them. Um, our scorpion type fishes, the fish that uh, live on the bottom, they're spiny. They're ferocious predators of the seahorse, like the red rock cod, for example. But then there's other animals. So the octopus is a massive predator of seahorses. And I've had some encounters with octopus trying to attack the seahorses I've been researching. And, you know, I've had to interfere with nature to stop the octopus eating my poor little seahorses, <laughs> which I know you shouldn't do, but, you know, I'm not one to let my seahorses get eaten by an octopus. And other things like cuttlefish as well. Cuttlefish will, will prey on the seahorses. The interesting thing is, though, the seahorses are quite bony. They're quite hard. So a lot of the time, like an octopus might attack and it might kill a seahorse, but it doesn't eat the whole body because it finds it quite bony. So I've often found on the seafloor near an octopus's den, like the remains of one of my seahorses dead, and it's it's kind of really sad to see that that's happened. Like at least, it's like. At least if the octopus had a proper full meal, and at least I know it's been used properly. But just to find the three quarters of my seahorse left, I'm like, oh, that's really disturbing. <laughs> that, that is kind of disturbing. So uh, even though there are a lot of things that eat it, they're not. They're probably not the most nutritious meal that that a predator can have. No, definitely not. And like when we've um, cut open some large fish like dolphin fish and snapper. Inside the fish is you can often find like whole seahorses just laying, digesting in the fish's stomach, and especially um, some of the pelagic species can often. You know, we had a dolphin fish cut open, and there was about thirty seahorses, all completely whole, sitting inside, and they just you know they break down, so they're providing nutrition to the to the fish. But it's kind of sad, really. Like we don't want our seahorses being eaten. Like what have they ever done to harm anyone? <laughs> yeah, exactly, and especially not being eaten alive. That's that's even worse, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not very. No, I don't, I don't like thinking about what eats the seahorses. The poor little things. <laughs> yeah, and and I think we've all heard the fact that seahorses are one of the few species where the male actually gets pregnant. Can you explain this process a little bit and how it differs from other animals? Yeah, and this is what makes seahorses really cool. It's one of the only animals in the world where the male will give birth. And the male can be identified by the pouch that it has on, on the front of its body. And what happens over the breeding season, a male and a female will come together and they do this beautiful morning ritual mating dance. So they'll wrap their tails together and they'll raise up into the water column. And if that male isn't pregnant, the female will transfer her eggs 
into his pouch and he'll fertilize them inside the pouch and he he might be pregnant for anywhere between depending on species anywhere from 10 to 40 days now the species i work on here in australia the white seahorse that's 20 to 21 days you can set your watch by it it always happens on about 21 days now when the male gives birth he might pop out anywhere between 50 to 250 babies at a time and all these little baby seahorses will pop out and they're fully developed so they look like a seahorse except they're very very small the size of um the white seahorse babies are only eight millimeters so just under a centimeter long which is about half an inch and as soon as he pops them out there's no parental care they're on their own in this this big wide world and unfortunately during the the birthing process all these babies will be popping out and that's a really good opportunity for the predators to come in and predators will actually feed on these baby seahorses so the survival rate of baby seahorses isn't very high it's probably only about say five percent maybe maybe less maybe around one um otherwise you know can you imagine all these babies being born the whole ocean would be overrun by seahorses which would be fantastic it's just that <laughs> they're not growing up to survive and then once that male's given birth a few hours later the female will come and approach him again and you know the the poor seahorse, male seahorse, just wants to rest after three hours, four hours of labour, but she'll impregnate him again. She'll stick some more eggs back into his pouch <laughs> and the whole cycle will start all over again. And over a breeding season, a male seahorse can go through this process at least eight times. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you imagine, so he's popped out, you know, the white seahorse might pop out 100 to 150 babies at a time. So he's given birth to over 1,000 animals during a breeding season. So by the end of that breeding season, he just needs a rest. Yeah, I, I would assume so. That's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And one of the other really cool things we, we found here in Australia, the research that I was doing, is that um, they can display long-term monogamy, whereas they, they sort of fall in love with each other. So they'll partner up for the breeding season. If both of them still are still alive the following year, the same animals will breed again together. And I've had um, two two pairs breeding for three breeding seasons in a row. And they don't move very far. They might only be one or two meters away from each other during their entire life cycle. So it's pretty fascinating. They fall in love. They find their little happy place and they stay there. And if you know none of them get eaten or they die from old age, they'll stay together. So they're really loyal to one another, which is such a beautiful story in the marine world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like more people should know about this, the seahorse love story. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's a remarkable thing. <laughs> and I imagine the the reason why they have so many babies at a time is because of that low survival rate. Oh, exactly. So, you know, otherwise, like I said, imagine 100 seahorses living here in an estuary. They pop out around 1,000 babies over a breeding season. So you could have 100,000 seahorses taking over the estuary, but you never see that many. And that's because the survival rate is so low. And that's why they actually have to keep breeding and keep popping out more to get the survival up. Yeah. And you we're talking a little bit about their reproduction and their populations. So what are some of the challenges that seahorses are facing right now? Right. And that's a great question. It's one of the sad things about the seahorses. So all around the world, seahorses are under threat. So the populations are declining. And that's attributed to three things. The first one is overfishing. The second is being caught as bycatch. And the third is habitat loss. Now, with the overfishing, in places such as India, Vietnam, and Thailand, 
up to over 30 million seahorses can be collected each year. Wow. And they're traditionally used for, uh, they're basically used for traditional Chinese medicine. So seahorses used in traditional medicines for curing illnesses such as res- uh, respiratory disease and other ailments. So there's a demand for the seahorses. So unfortunately, because there's a demand, there's people that go out and they'll fish for them and catch them. Now, fortunately, seahorses are listed on CITES, which is a convention uh, for trade in endangered species. And those countries that signed up to CITES, they regulate the trade in the seahorses. But there's still a lot of illegal and unreported illegal fishing that occurs. And hence the seahorses, as quite often you'll have um, seizures of lots of dried seahorses destined for the um, illegal market. And then the second one is the bycatch. So when we eat shrimp or prawns, as we call them in Australia, the shrimp fisheries will trawl over the seafloor. And when they're trawling for their prawns and shrimp, they'll bring up seahorses by mistake. And so those seahorses are taken as bycatch, and then they'll also be you know, sold, sold in the fisheries markets. But the problem with the trawling is that bottom trawlies, trawling is really indiscriminate. It doesn't actually select what fish they're going to take. They just take everything on the seafloor. And not just the fish, they actually will also roll over the seahorses' habitats and they'll destroy the habitat as well. So those beautiful fans and sponges that the seahorses might live on, they'll get trawled up, which leads on to the third one, which is habitat loss. So all around the world, seahorses' habitats, such as the seagrasses and the mangroves and the sponges and soft coral gardens, they're all declining quite rapidly in some places. And, you know, if we don't have this, the um, habitats, we won't have the seahorses. The seahorses rely on marine habitats to live in because it provides food for them, it provides camouflage for them, and they use their nice long tails to grip onto a habitat to hold them in place. And most of them are very territorial. They'll stay on that habitat for a long time. So if that habitat is lost, the seahorse doesn't have anywhere to hide and survive. Yeah, so they're obviously facing a lot of problems, and a lot of them are due to us. Most of them are due to us. Yeah, uh-huh. like, yeah, unfortunately, us humans are having you know, major impacts on the marine environment in so many different ways. And some of the activities that we are doing is actually causing great harm to seahorse populations. And that's why on the IUCN Red List, we have quite a few seahorse species that are listed as endangered, they're listed as vulnerable, uh-huh. which means if if we don't, um, put actions in place to reduce their declines, those species could become extinct in the future. Yeah, definitely. And what are some things that we can do to help? Oh, that's a great question. There's so much we can do to look after our marine environment. There are so many initiatives out there. Most importantly is if you're ever traveling and you see the dried seahorses for sale on a key ring or in a paper ring, don't buy them. There's, there's, if you buy the seahorses, the dried seahorses, you're actually creating a demand for them, which means that they're going to increase supply and they're going to try and get more. So never, ever buy um, dried or dead seahorses. And then on your local level, try and support your um, local conservation initiatives that are looking after the marine environment. We have activities here in Australia where citizen science projects, where you can go out and you can help replant seagrass. You can help um, do seahorse through Project Seahorse, you can do seahorse photography and submit your photos into iSeahorse and Project Seahorse to get an understanding of where the seahorses are found. And then we learn more about them. And we might learn that there's seahorses in areas where we didn't know, which would be great. And then there's other things that we can do where habitat has been lost and it's not coming back. There's an issues in place to try and replace that habitat. 
So a couple of years ago, I came up with the idea of seahorse hotels. And the seahorse hotels are these artificial habitats we put back into the ocean in places like Sydney Harbour to provide habitat for the endangered white seahorse to live on. And they've been really, really successful. And now in Australia, we have this great initiative under Taylor's Wise, and it's called the CBNB Initiative. And you can look that up on a website, cbnb.com.au. And under that initiative, we're raising money to put artificial habitats back in the ocean for the endangered white seahorse so it doesn't decline in the future. That's really amazing. And I, I would love to check that out. Everybody should get definitely go to that website um, and check check that out. And you were talking about some of the things that we can do, and it's really easy to not buy something, right? And it's also, it, it could be really fun to to do some of those initiatives where you're helping to replant uh, seagrasses and take photos of seahorses. So conservation can be easy and also fun. Oh, most definitely. And I, as I say to all the people I, I meet and, and um, in my travels around the place, go snorkeling, go into the marine environment, take your kids snorkeling, go and see what's out there. And then when you do, you'll start to appreciate what we have in the ocean. You know, swimming over a seagrass field and there's, you know, beautiful fish swimming over it and there might be cuttlefish. And if you're lucky enough and you find a seahorse, that's going to make your day. It'll make your week. And it sort of gives you that sort of pride about the marine environment. It gives you a bit of stewardship over it. So those people that see that, then they appreciate what they can do to try and help, you know, maintain it and restore it in those areas where it's needed. Definitely. And it's it's one thing to w- look at a coral reef or, or a, a seahorse on a screen, but it's another thing to actually go out and, and see one for yourself in the wild. It's just, it's a completely different experience and, and it's amazing. Oh, most definitely. Some of the biggest smiles I've ever seen from children are the ones that I've taken snorkeling and I've shown them a seahorse. They've touched the seahorse, they've seen a seahorse and they'll go home and they'll tell their parents about that forever. That's so cool. And, and David, thank you so much for coming on today. I, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. And I, I really learned so much about seahorses. No worries, Alex. Thanks for having me on board. That was so much fun. David really gave us some amazing insights about the incredible lives of seahorses. They're so different from any other animal. Unfortunately, like David told us, seahorse populations are struggling right now. That's why it's so important to support organizations that are helping them. You should absolutely go take a look at Port Stevens Fisheries Institute. Some other organizations that you should check out are Project Seahorse and the Seahorse Trust. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of seahorses. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and organizations that we referenced at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. You've been listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details.